You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Wu Ming Chuan, a.k.a. Jacob Newell, an ordained Taoist priest with a quarter-century experience with Buddhist and Taoist meditation and qi cultivation. He resides with his family in Santa Rosa, California, and is the author of These Taoist Bones, a book of contemplative poetry. He writes the blog Taoist Blog of Nameless Stream and runs Old Oak School of Tao. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on the show are from a CD called Heavenly Bamboo and Silk Strings, 11 melodies played on Chinese string and wind instruments. This piece is called Autumn Wind Tune. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, and joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here on this very spring-like afternoon. 
This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Wu Ming Chuen, a.k.a. Jacob Newell, an ordained Taoist priest with a quarter-century experience with Buddhist and Taoist meditation and qi cultivation. He resides with his family in Santa Rosa, California, and is the author of These Taoist Bones, a book of contemplative poetry. He writes the blog Taoist Blog of Nameless Stream and runs Old Oak School of Tao. On the website for Old Oak School, he writes... My Wu Wei Dao teacher was Liu Wenming, a Euro-American who inherited an aristocratic family tradition from northern China. I was also ordained into an offshoot of the Dragon Gate School, and I am closely connected with the Ryu Tai Chi School of Korean and Korean Zen. I am also an avid student of Russian Sistema, so thank you all to all of my teachers. Wu Ming Chuan, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it's great to have you here, and we will begin, as we do with uh, first-time guests, um, which is to invite you to cast your memory back to childhood and youth, and um, if there are any experiences in that period of your life that come to mind upon reflection that you might point to... uh, today as an adult uh, and a practitioner of 25 years and say, ah, that was sort of a, uh, a harbinger that pointed in the direction that I would uh, uh, take in my, in my later life. So, so if anything comes up, by all means, uh, tell us about it. Yes, I remember the time when I was probably between the age of four and six, and I had a lot of questions, I think, in the way that most kids do. And my kids are starting to ask these really fundamental questions. Why is the sky blue? Where did I come from? Who was the first person? And uh, I had a a really deep question about God and my true nature. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I I was a, a very devout, as a child, and you know, I was just looking for, say, the adult world to provide me the answers to these questions. Um, I remember one one um, kind of a visceral experience I had. I must have been, I don't know, six or seven. Um, I was taking a bath in my bathtub, and I was splayed out in my head and my feet both touched the edge of the bathtub so I could no longer fit. And it, this was a, a real visceral experience where my, it wasn't just thinking, it was my, my feeling of my body and my impression of what I am, not in some philosophical sense, but just in the sense of embodiment was no longer what it had been. And this notion struck me that, you know, what what I think that I am, this this creature, this uh, bundle of conditions that is Jacob Newell, is is changing. And uh, right about the same time, my parents got divorced, and I was my mom moved to a different city, just a half hour away, and so I was going to be going to different schools than I had thought I was going to go to, and I thought about how this different uh, string of life experiences would hit me, you know, 
going to different schools, meeting new friends. And the person that I would become would be shaped by that. So this question of what am I in terms of, you know, certain conditions can shape me in one direction. Other conditions can shape me in another direction. But my instinct at that time told me that, but, you know, what I am really is not dependent on this condition or that condition. Uh, and my, my instincts were telling me that even before I was born, even before my parents were born, my nature was fully ma- manifest. <clears throat> but it seems to be obscured from my perception. I feel separate from my nature. And so there was a a feeling of spiritual anguish, I would say, um, a longing to experience God in a complete and direct way. Well, as someone who was also raised Catholic, uh, I I would have to say... um, that's not a very Catholic question to ask <laughs> for a kid the the age you describe yourself being. Uh, so I'm I'm um, intrigued. I mean, it has a, a decidedly Buddhist or um, maybe Taoist. I don't know enough about Taoism to say, but 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 definitely not from that tradition. So before we get into where that where asking this question led you i guess i'd like to understand a little bit more about the context because you mentioned that you were uh i can't remember the word you you used devout or or something like that you you were it sounds like you you thought of the religious project in a serious way um and i'm wondering if whatever background you had in catholicism affected that as I say that the question you you just described which is a profound question especially for a six-year-old um, but for anyone um, doesn't strike me as arising out of that what one would be schooled in the Catholic tradition uh, to ask so I don't know if there's anything more to say about that but uh, but I invite anything that comes up Thank you. Um, to an extent, I think I'm probably re-articulating in my um, modern-day language the thoughts I was having and maybe not not um, putting a whole lot of words to those thoughts back when I was a child. But... Yeah, I mean, the the idea of a question and raising questions, you know, what I'm uh, inspired to respond with is that um, I think this question of what am I is something that is fundamental to the human experience. I don't think it's something that necessarily just, say, arises out of one tradition or another. I think different traditions will come up with um, 
kind of views on how to approach that question or methods on how to work with that question. And um, if we're really unfortunate, maybe they'll provide us some answers. <laughs> um, but I, I think the, um, you know, when when I was a kid, I felt that this question was a source of discomfort. And um, maybe that's a theme that we can come to later when I talk about... Um, I, I had a, an existential crisis in college that was the same question that, that came back. I think, mm-hmm. you know, with an, an older mind and you start asking these same questions and, um, you know, the, this basic question of what am I and why can I not just snap my fingers and say, be enlightened? Um, it's it's <laughs> interesting. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of a experience I had as a kid, um, probably eight or nine years old, and I was uh, studying. I was very interested in science, and so I had been studying astronomy and uh, uh, zoology, and and so I was very you know a smart, precocious kid about these things. And I remember being outside playing in the street. Uh, with a friend and his little brother was riding a bicycle nearby and I went through this recitation internally where I was, you know, like I could understand uh, the earth and I could understand, you know, the, the from astronomy, the solar system, the stars, the planets, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden I said, uh, you know, something along the lines of why am I I? And, and it was like there, this profound shock. It's like there was no answer, and there was no way I could get around that experience of self-consciousness with the same levers that I could get around, you know, a question about the sun or the question about the moon. And it was a very powerful shock, and it, it it's resounded throughout my life. And yet, in that moment, I had the shock, and then kind of went back to playing on the street. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's all. That reverberation has always been there, and so I. I have that same kind of sense that you know, as kids, we we uh, touch these places. You know, this is this is not the exclusive province of adults. Uh, as children, we come across. We may like any any experience as kids. It, it arises and passes, but uh, it's there. It's neat for me to hear you tell that story because it makes me realize how um, you know we're here having this discussion. And I think that that question is that initial seed for why uh, you're on your path, I'm on my path, but that question itself, maybe we're approaching it differently, but that is like the kernel of our humanity, and we share that. It's it's really nice to hear that. Um, So... Similar to your experience, you know, I I had this question, but then, you know, I mean, I would, um, you know, ask usually my father or grandparents or a teacher at school for some answer, and I'd... Maybe there were were some, some answers about, you know, if you believe in this certain path, you'll go to heaven, but... Um, you know, that sounded nice, and I did believe that, but at the same time, there was something uncomfortable about that idea because 
I had this question of, well, who is it that you're telling me is going to go to heaven? Because all of the people who were telling me this answer seemed that they were completely convinced in their own identity as uh, I. And I was not convinced that this creature that I um, perceive myself to be, this identity in my mind, was not convinced that that's really me. <laughs> um, so the the question was kind of there, but I didn't really, um, I mean, what can you do? How, how do you work with that question as a child? So I continued and grew up, and it, it was not really until um, I graduated from high school and went away to college and had all the freedom of college and, um, uh, you know, dropping out a, a little bit of the mainstream and, you know, smoking marijuana and uh, spending a lot of time in nature, a lot of uh, backpacking and um, kind of removing myself from this um, intensely pressurized machine that is the human society that's pushing us to achieve the next step, you know, whether it's this graduation or that job or that relationship or that kid. Um, retreating from that that pressure of what is kind of expected of human life. I mean, this was in the midst of college, and so I was going to classes. I was, um, while I had been a honor student in high school, in college I barely passed. <laughs> um, I just sailed through um, because. I spent a lot of time doing Tai Chi, a lot of time um, practicing Zen meditation, going on retreats, and a lot of time backpacking. And um, the, the, um, the, I, I recall at that time this, this sense of this question being a real sense of discomfort. Got it. So um, I'm interested in how you... Um, in college, I mean, it's not unusual in college, I suppose, you know, to um, become acquainted with uh, with Tai Chi and Zen meditation stuff like that. But how did that how did that arise for you? And um, did you see your engagement with those practices as having anything to do with this fundamental underlying question that you've been discussing? Yes. I have memories of back when I was a kid with this question of having a sense that there were um, groups of people up in the mountains with long beards <laughs> practicing things, doing chanting and doing various stuff and having some knowledge. I I had that that feeling, um, and during this this period of time, um, this was the spring of 1994. Actually, it's probably March. So 25 years ago, um, March April 1994, I was riding my skateboard by the uh, lagoon at UC Santa Barbara, and I saw. 
Master Lawrence Carroll teaching a Tai Chi class under a fig tree. And this group of half a dozen people or so moving very slowly, very contemplatively, and it drew me in. Like the peacefulness that they were exuding uh, was as though it was resonating with the peacefulness of the lagoon and it just instantly struck me like there's something there for me. And at the same time, literally the same month, I had looked up uh, meditation and I don't recall exactly why or how, but I, I um, sat on my first Zen cushion um, that that same month, and so I, I enrolled in a Tai Chi class and joined a Zen group, and I started uh, practicing both arts, uh, which which is an interesting uh, dynamic. And in in my sense, it was I mean I was all working on the same thing, but I think it took me many years, and I think I can look back with greater clarity now and see okay what is it that Zen is working with and toward and on what is it that Tai Chi you know how how are how is Tai Chi approaching this experience of of human life versus Zen um, so I stuck with those two practices throughout college and beyond um, I was never really able to just pick one or the other and maybe I can talk a bit about why that was love to hear it um, so the uh, you know my my experience of sitting in Zen and um, th this was uh, studying with a Japanese school for my first six months. And then um, the next uh, fall, I, was, I went to study abroad in China. And on the, on the way uh, to China, we stopped in Seoul, Korea for about uh, five days. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, in my... In a social isolation, other people were going out and drinking beer. I was looking up the maps, looking for temples, and I went out walking at, uh, in the e evening. It was dark, and I went through um, down a dark alley looking for Chogesa, Choge Temple, the center of uh, Zen Buddhism in Korea. And uh, I remember walking through the gate. And there was a bunch of people gathered at at one building, and then I, I looked behind me, and someone else walked through the gate, but they bowed. So I I walked back into the alley, kind of composed myself, and then I bowed as I entered the gate. And then this um, very robust, kind of aggressive uh, man came, um, kind of lunging toward me, and he dressed in a nice suit. And he's you know pointing his finger at me. He said, "You, Zen meditation, Zen Master Sung San." And he like grabbed me and he yanked me, pulled me into the building. And uh, it turns out that Zen Master Sung San um, was giving a Dharma talk. 
in Korean at that moment. And when I looked up and I just, the feeling of the setting, the feeling of the clarity and the power um, was uh, dramatic and and just hit me all the way through when he uh, held his stick in the air and brought it down. Um, You know, I did not understand Korean, but I knew he was um, addressing this question in a very clear way way and so I was introduced to him after the talk and it turns out this this robust aggressive guy was the um, uh, like the head of the temple and so he introduced me to Zen Master Sung San and um, you know Sung San had been um, I don't know kind of you know, blessing uh, people, and then, then he got tapped on the shoulder and turned around, and you know his robes were flying, and uh, he just looked straight into my eyes, and he asked, "Where you come from? Where do you come from?" And that question, like, shattered my the past and the future. Just that one clear question: "Where you come from?" And I was like, just. Um, kind of shattered actually uh in in a grateful way and i kind of composed myself and i was like oh california and he's like oh, he like uh just kind of nodded and then went back to his blessings and that was the beginning of my study of korean zen um <clears throat> but back back to to your question and, and what we're um or this line of discussion, you know, how does Zen Buddhism approach this question, and more specifically, how how did Zen Master Sung San approach this question of what am I? And first of all, his his teaching at, at the basis is this question: What am I? Um, and discovering this question. I mean, there's some appetite that brings us to a practice, but really, really sitting with what is this this question. Um, w- one of the big influences on my um, experience of practicing Zen and my understanding of Buddhism was the Diamond Sutra and the Platform Sutra which basically say that you know what what is this thing that we are I lost my train of thought so we we are kind of exploring the the thread of how Zen approaches the question of what am I, and how, in, in fact, uh, Sun Song or Sun Sanim's uh, uh, unique way of expressing that was very physical and impactful and very direct. Uh, you're you're not the first person on this show to describe a question like that from him. You know that uh, uh, kind of stops you in time and space. Uh, for a moment. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll just mention that um, I only had the privilege and pleasure to meet uh, um, Sung San once, um, and um, but it was a ve- it was a very memorable evening for me. I have uh, a clear recollection of a particular point in his talk. And then because uh, our friend who had brought us to the talk, we, we got to converse with him a little bit after after the talk, the public talk. But um, but that, um, that unambiguous clarity is something that, that it seems to me great teachers can manifest. And it sounds like he got you really good there. Um, uh, and he got particular. me again as I was trying to explain something. So thanks oh. for bailing me out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I have it back. Um, so, uh, one, you know, kind of, this kind of connects back to my early childhood question of this this notion of what what am I fu- at a fundamental question at a fundamental level, but also this idea this reality that we have changing conditions and if conditions go this way my experience goes this way if conditions go that way my experience goes that way and one of the real um, uh, kind of fundamentals in Zen is that we are not simply trying to improve our conditions and one of the things that he and his his senior teachers would say is that Zen is not about self-improvement. And that was a really sticky point for me because I was in this experience of feeling that there's something, there's some sense of discomfort and this question, the discomfort that comes with the question, I was longing to transform that into like comfort and ease. And, um, you know, if you sprinkle some sense of uh, uh, maybe lack of confidence or just not really being fully um, content with who you are, then you are, of course, you want to look for some kind of a self-improvement path. Um, You know, if we talk about self-cultivation, there are many... um, what we could call the self-improvement arts that are absolutely wonderful and effective. But to, when it was suggested to me that Zen is not self-improvement, then what is it? So this idea in the, like the Diamond Sutra and the Platform Sutra that this is not a progressive path of gradually polishing away dust but actually all that that appears to be dust is in fact empty already. Um, I recognize this, although I did not feel that I was having this experience, I recognized that the teaching of Zen Buddhism was um, going for this larger context. It was not just going for, okay, I want to improve my health. I want to be happier. I want to um, you know, improve the conditions of my life, whether externally or internally. The Zen was the big context. So that, because it really resonated with that fundamental question, that is what drew me to continue practicing. So how did that weave in then with the Tai Chi, and how did you see the distinction there, and how did that keep you interested 
So, although I really um, connected with this question and the direction of Zen, the um, kind of the cultural context of Buddhism never really felt natural to me. And what felt really natural, like my home place, was Taoism. The first time I read the Tao Te Ching was sometime around 1994, um, around the same time I started uh, this Tai Chi class. Um, in terms of the, of the Tao Te Ching, I read this text and was blown away and knew that that was um, my direction but like how do you work with that text and you look around there's nobody actually working with that text um, but the um, you know there was some loose connection between that text and the um, more broadly speaking Taoist philosophy uh, Chinese medicine and um, whatnot and the the practice of Tai Chi um, my experience of Tai Chi was, um, you know, it, it takes effort and learning to learn a Tai Chi form. It's, uh, it's a lot of work, and I put a lot of work into learning this particular Tai Chi form. It took a, a year or two, and I spent a lot of uh, time with it. Um, as I began to, um, you know, get deeper into the practice of Tai Chi, what was, what what was becoming very, very clear to me, not philosophically, but actually the feeling in my body was my breathing was improving, my posture was improving, I was less fatigued and felt more kind of robust inside, uh, my teeth were feeling stronger, and my hearing and eyesight was improving. Um, this sense of, of anxiety and discomfort was just calming down. And it was a very significant experience of gradually transforming a, a pretty serious sense of discomfort, which was both like this kind of spiritual anguish, but at the same time just like kind of feeling uncomfortable in my body. And Tai Chi... It, it wasn't addressing this larger question in any kind of direct way. Like Zen Master Sung San is very direct, right? Tai Chi is not really approaching that question, um, but it's just like working with Chi. And so the way I'm viewing this like distinction now between you know my experience of Zen, my experience of Tai Chi is that um, you know Tai Chi is working with Chi and it's transforming Chi in a very gradual way, Chi energy, um, to improve your Chi flow. And as uh, as the years went on, I started uh, getting more into the martial side of Tai Chi and met uh, really uh, some phenomenal teachers up in Mendocino County by the names of Frank Broadhead and Sam Edwards. And they brought me to a completely different uh, level of uh, comfort and relaxation uh, under duress. So I... I could never really just give up the Buddhism and only like practice Tai Chi as a complete art because I felt that 
particularly the way it was had been presented was that this is a cool art to whether it's you know to uh, just to improve your movements or to just improve your sense of well-being or to develop some kind of a martial skill. It it didn't have the overall context that 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 kind of breaking out of conditions that that Zen was presenting. But at the same time, my experience of Zen was I I could feel that my practice was being very, very supported by my practice of Tai Chi, as though the the Chi cultivation was creating a base for the practice of sitting meditation. And... As uh, time went on and you became uh, exposed to uh, Wu Wei Dao, which we'll we'll get into, I'm just, I'm interested if that if you found that the bigger picture and the uh, the energetic framework uh, from Zen and and from Tai Chi came together into that in that richer practice, which, as I understand it, is the kind of the basis of your teaching and your practice now. Yes. Um, in 2007, I met Liu Ming, who was a Westerner. Um, he, uh, Ming had been a, a Buddhist monk living in Taiwan in the 1970s. And you think of, um, you know, go, go to Taiwan uh, in the 1970s. Not a whole lot of Westerners there. Uh, not a whole lot of Westerners running around in Buddhist robes. Um, when when I went to Taiwan on a Tai Chi pilgrimage in 2006, I was uh, in southern Taiwan. As I would ride my bike around, people would look at me, and um, I mentioned this the other day, but they would you know point it at my nose, say, atoga, atoga, um, which means big nose. You know, it's like you know, this foreigner. Um, Ming was in northern Taiwan, and where they speak Mandarin. And um, the word for big nose in Mandarin is Dabi. And so he became known as the Dabi Lama. Um, and uh, so he, he had, he had a, a background in Buddhism. But as he was uh, practicing Buddhism in Taiwan, his Buddhist teacher brought him to a, a hermitage where there had been Taoist hermits in on, Taiwan on retreat in Taiwan and this one particular hermit had apparently been on retreat for like 20 years and when Dabi Lama you know bowed to this guy's cave the guy came tromping down the trail and you know shaking his hand western style and um, brought him up to the the cave or the her- hermitage and took him in as a student um, and it turns out that this Hermit was a lineage holder um, for an an orthodox Taoist tradition, a family tradition that had close ties with the imperial family. And um, the hermit claimed that his lineage went back 2,000 years. Um, And Ming suggested, well, maybe maybe a thousand years, like Song Dynasty, but that's that's a long long time. so the hermit adopted Ming into his family, and so Dabi Lama became Liu Ming. And 
transmitted to him a, a series of practices uh, of Orthodox Taoism. And one of those was this stream of uh, Zhouang meditation that is what we refer to as Wu Wei Dao, uh, to distinguish it from the broader suite of the, the complex and elaborate practices that are the, the full suite of Taoism. Um, so in uh, so I was introduced to Ming in 2007. It was actually uh, during the Taoist ordination program I was going through um, with Michael Rinaldini. And Michael had, um, you know, he's always exploring different teachers, and he had brought some teaching in from Liu Ming, and it really, really resonated with me in a complete way. Um, and so I went to a talk that he gave in the fall of 2007, and uh, it was at the annual Taoist gathering put on by. Alex Fung in uh, Oakland. And the title of Liu Ming's talk was Did Lao Tzu Practice Meditation? And it was, I don't know, an hour-long talk. But in the first 15 minutes, everything changed for me. Everything, everything completely changed. Um, The way that I had been relating to my practice, the way that I had been relating to this question, has never been the same and also just the fact that he was demonstrating that here is a practicing lineage that is based on the the wisdom teaching of, of the Tao Te Ching and here's a practice that goes along with it you know something I had been looking for not in an active sense but something I had, had wanted for um I guess that would have been about 13 years. Yeah, you'd mentioned that, um, uh, I think, in the talk the other night at the at Many Rivers, that the Tao Te Ching is, you know, most people relate to it as this uh, philosophical work as opposed to a practice. Or And 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 so it's in, I hear you saying that the shock and the revelation was, here's a practice associated with this text that had been so influential for you. Yes, and you know, there's a lot of mystery in in Taoism, especially if you go back 2,500 years, and you know, we we don't know who these people are were. You know, this Lao Tzu, this group of cultivators who wrote the Tao Te Ching. We don't really know what practices they were doing. Probably a broad suite of practices. The Tao Te Ching is not. Um, it's not a technical manual in the sense that it says you should practice Tai Chi or this is how you do sitting meditation. But um, in my studies with Ming, he opened up the text and demonstrated that it actually is an instruction manual for, it's it's an instruction manual for how to comport ourselves in terms of, we say, Jing, Qi, and Shen. So we, we can kind of translate that as like body and mind. Um, and that relates to whatever practices that we're doing, whether it's some kind of formal movement practice or a kind of a ritual or a sitting meditation or just the, the moment-to-moment uh, functioning of our daily life. So 
we don't know that Lao Tzu practiced meditation necessarily, but Ming's assertion was, yeah, I think probably. Um, and uh, as it turns out, the um, the Taoist tradition has this one particular practice that is referred to as Zhou Wang, which means sitting and forgetting. And we think this this practice predates Lao Tzu and is, is suggested by the text. It's not really important, I think, whether Lao Tzu was talking about this particular practice. What's important is, so here, Zhou Wang is a method of sitting quietly and just letting things be as they are. And we we can use the Tao Te Ching to inform the way that we cultivate ourselves, whether that's in sitting meditation or whether that's in Tai Chi. You know, Tai Chi would not exist without the Tao Te Ching. I mean, Tai Chi is like, you know, you take Shaolin and then you... Uh, Put the Tao Te Ching in there, and then it becomes Tai Chi. It's a, it's a, a, a different way of comporting your energy. I'll just mention for radio listeners that uh, uh, Jacob just a moment ago demonstrated the uh, distinction in the way he comported his body. He, he, he uh, had a sort of, I don't know, kind of a Yang, uh, the Shaolin, uh, Yang energy, and then. A relaxation um, to demonstrate this uh, um, this distinction and and um, I guess um, to change the subject just slightly for for just a second but I, I want to stick with this overall topic um, I'm wondering if your engagement with Liu Ming in 2007 was was it him personally as well or was it more what he was saying and how he was saying it. Did, I don't, I'm not sure if we understand the distinction, but mm-hmm. sometimes uh, the connection to a teacher is very important, it seems to me. And, um, and I'm wondering how that, how that manifested for you. Liu Ming was way out of my league. He was a very sophisticated practitioner, and I never felt like I could really get um, close to him in any kind of a personal sense, but it didn't matter because the transmission of the teaching came came through, and we we connected very well. It wasn't much of a personal relationship, but it was a resonance with the teaching. Um, I mean, it's a bit. I mean, how do you? Um, kind of separate the the person from the teaching um, but there's the 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 space that he held um, and when I when I look back in retrospect you know Liu Ming um, uh, really uh, his teaching resonated a lot with with Zen master Sung San but they're not the same uh, Zen Master Sung San had a very uh, robust and aggressive approach to this question. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he also had two sides to his teaching, uh, which I can see more clearly now, but at the time it, it was confusing. Um, he would, in one sense, 
say, you know, you know, you need to hold this question, or he would give you kongans to hold, and then you need to get enlightenment, save all beings. You know, very this this aggressive um, a- approach. But then, you know, he would turn around and say, wanting enlightenment is a big mistake. And if you can see clearly, if you can hear clearly, moment to moment to moment, you don't need enlightenment. And I connected with both of those. I mean, I, I felt that the deeper teaching was the latter. Mm-hmm. But I didn't believe I didn't believe in my own capacity to experience that. I felt like I needed some breakthrough experience. Um, and looking back, I can see how much pressure the idea, the aspiration for enlightenment was putting on my experience. And the one thing that Liu Ming really, um, I don't want to say gave me, it's the thing that he did for me, is he got me to soften my aspiration for enlightenment. And my experience of practice has been completely transformed since then. So since we started talking a little bit about Tuo uh, Wang, um, you know, a Westerner hearing sitting and forgetting, you know, is immediately going to want to locate it in the matrix of meditations. And so I guess I'm interested in how you um, experience the distinction between that practice and, say, a sitting practice in Zen, and whether the difference is more the context in which the teaching was presented or is the is there something in the actual practice itself that is distinct that is unique to uh, this tradition well um you know we can't really treat zen as though it's one approach because there's so many right. different approaches to zen and i mean if we really kind of um, this is oversimplified, but if we break it into what used to be called the northern and the southern schools, or um, there's the gongan approach of, you know, you have some question and it leads to some breakthrough. But then there's also the um, the Taodong approach, which became Dogen's Zen of the Soto school, which, you know, they use koans as well, but um, you know, Suzuki Roshi was a big, big influence of mine also, and uh, it, Suzuki Roshi was Liu Ming's first teacher. And his presentation of Zhou Wang and Wu Wei Dao is c- completely resonant with mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi's teaching. And um, the idea, the teaching from Suzuki Roshi. I remember in, in my early days, uh, I just just so beautiful that you know you don't we don't sit in order to attain enlightenment, we sit in order to express that which is already um, the case, and you know as we go to sit down on our cushion, it's already there. So that was a really core teaching. I mean that that goes to the question of view. What is your view? Are you approaching this practice as though you want to get something out of it and whether you're talking about a gradual improvement process or some kind of sudden breakthrough that's beyond this moment Suzuki Roshi's teaching I feel uh, really introduces you to a practice where there's no pressure 
to attain something. And um, back when I was practicing Zen, I was bringing this this pressure to the situation. Mm-hmm. And although I recognized this teaching in Zen Master Sung San that um, was just so beautiful, you know, without cultivation already complete. Wow. Wow. Am I ready for that? Am I ready to really live that way? Um, but because he also had this like push, push, push to enlightenment, save all beings, that's that's a pretty um, high aspiration. Um, and also that that school has a lot of really strong personalities. And I felt like, oh, where, you know, how do I kind of fit in? fit in here. Um, it was under Liu Ming's um, teaching that just, and, and whether it was his teaching and my readiness for it, but I was finally able to um, sit without trying to attain anything out of it. Well, we just have a few minutes left in this first hour, but but maybe you can just um, briefly talk then about this practice of sitting and forgetting, and then we'll transition from there in the discussion in the second hour. Okay. Um, so we say that this practice... This is a method, but the, you know the practice has a view and a method. And this is one of the things that Ming brought over from uh, from Buddhism was the idea that there's, there's we've got view, method, and fruition. So if you have some method, you know all methods come with there's some kind of view behind it, and it's important that your method. That you're bringing the correct view to the method, or if you have a certain view, you should practice methods that correspond to that view. And this is particularly important in a practice like Zhouang, where view is everything. I mean, there there is a method to it, but if we are trying to treat Zouang as like if we're trying to get some kind of a breakthrough experience, you can't practice Zouang with that view because that view is distorting the actual practice of Zouang. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be breakthroughs or there won't be some kind of a gradual unfolding, but the view is, is, is uh, based on a deep engagement in the teaching of the, La- the Tao Te Ching which is all about, you know, relaxing the, you know, engagement in uh, desires and thinking and uh, just calming down, not forcing things, just letting things be in their natural context, responding to events as they arise. Uh, so, so long is intended to be, um, as Ming would say, not a solution to a problem. So, if you're approaching practice like there's some fundamental problem, like, um, you know, my experience had been like, okay, my starting point is whether it's original sin or the first noble truth, life is suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I want to get out. Ming suggested, well, this practice doesn't come from that starting place. 
So depending on, on our view, our experience of the practice will be different. And so if it's not a solution to a problem, what is it? Um, it's really, it's, a, and I'm ju- I'll just quote Ming here, it's a platform for appreciating our nature, appreciating what, what are we, what is this situation we're in, what, that we're actually in right now, not something we're trying to achieve through the practice. Um, so view, method, and fruition. So f- through this practice of so long with this uh, Wu Wei view, there's a natural ripening that that happens from the the practice of just sitting with things as they are, not trying to change them. There's a, a settling of qi that will happen. There's an opening up uh, uh, upstairs that happens that is not driven by effort, not driven by trying to push or improve, but uh, a natural unfolding. So we will take that, uh, elaborate on that uh, in the next hour, but I appreciate uh, a very clear description there. We need to take a short break at the hour. The time is 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is KOWS LP. Cal's Community Radio, Occidental California, serving Santa Rosa and West Sonoma County and broadcasting live at 92.5 on your FM dial and streaming at www.kows.fm. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Wu Ming Chuan, a.k.a. Jacob Newell, an ordained Taoist priest with a quarter-century experience with Buddhist and Taoist meditation and qi cultivation. He resides with his family in Santa Rosa, California, and is the author of These Taoist Bones, a book of contemplative poetry. He writes the blog, Taoist Blog of Nameless Stream, and runs Old Oak School of Tao. Cal's Community Programming is underwritten in part by the Diana Center. The center is a holistic healing, health, educational center, and community workshop space. They're located in downtown Sebastopol at 186 North Main Street, Suite 220, and open Monday through Friday. To find out more about their services, you can contact them at 707-823-8818 or visit them online at dianacenter.com. That's D-H-Y-A-N-A center.com. The show you're listening to is underwritten in part by Food Equipment Repair Service. Commercial Food Equipment Repair Service specializes in keeping your commercial cooling and refrigeration equipment up and running at all times. They're located at 465 Kenwood Court, Suite C in Santa Rosa. You can reach them by phone at 707-537-7400 or find them online at foodequipmentrepairservice.com. Were you aware that one in every six people in Sonoma County is in need of food assistance? The Redwood Empire Food Bank remains committed to providing food to hungry children, adults, and seniors throughout the year. There are many ways you can make a difference. For every dollar you donate, the Redwood Empire Food Bank can provide two meals to our neighbors in need. For more information, please visit refb.org or call 707-523-7900 today. Cows Radio is membership-supported, and uh, we can invite you to go to kows.fm and check out the many ways to become a member of the herd and join in this community radio project. We've got all kinds of interesting projects uh, coming up and uh, things that are ongoing, 
And, of course, we need financial support as well because uh, no one gets any um, uh, remuneration for uh, their services to cows, but we still have equipment to maintain and replace, etc. So go to kows.fm and check out the many ways to become a member of this community radio station. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Heavenly Bamboo and Silk Strings, 11 melodies played on Chinese string and wind instruments. This piece is called Wind Bathing Melody.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Wu Ming Chuan, a.k.a. Jacob Newell, an ordained Taoist priest with a quarter-century experience with Buddhist and Taoist meditation and qi cultivation. He resides with his family in Santa Rosa, California, and is the author of These Taoist Bones, a book of contemplative poetry. He writes the blog Taoist a Blog of Nameless Stream and runs Old Oak School of Tao. So before the uh, break, you were talking about uh, uh, sitting and forgetting as well. Zouang, or Zouang, I'm not sure how to, exactly how to pronounce it. In fact, every Chinese word I say on this show, mm-hmm. please forgive me for my mistakes. Um, but... Um, I just want to read back a few of the own wor- your own words from, from your blog and ask for your comment. You wrote in, in one of your blogs, uh, The view of Zhuang as practiced in Lao Tzu's tradition is distinctly different from alchemical practices geared to bring about refinement and transformation. It's also quite different from magical practices that manipulate qi to improve auspices. It doesn't conflict with these practices, and in fact is often practiced in conjunction with them, yet it stands alone as something disengaged from aspirational pursuits. Wu Wei Dao isn't about producing some exalted state, it's simply relaxing into our natural condition, uncontrived by effort and intention. That's kind of where we left off at the last hour, but you didn't talk about these other practices and the relationship um, and I know that's, or I, I think I understand that, that those are not your, the center of your practice. And nevertheless, you may or may not be engaged in, in some or all of them. And so maybe you could just comment for listeners so that they might understand some of the, um, the ways in which what you're up to and what you're teaching um, might differ from other manifestations of Taoism that they've encountered. Yes. I break down the Taoist arts into kind of three areas, and I don't know if this is uh, traditional or not. I think it's part of the you know, having a Western mind and wanting to be a bit organized, but um, hygiene, meditation, and ritual. And the term hygiene is uh, translated from uh, Yangsheng, which is, uh, literally means nourishing life. So oftentimes when we talk about, say, the Taoist arts or the Chinese health arts, we're talking about hygiene practices. And when um, I, I would refer to, say, Tai Chi or Qigong as a hygiene practice. It's kind of ritualistic. It's kind of meditative. But um, I think everything will cross over between these three areas, but if we're, re- I can, I think we can really say that, you know, Tai Chi and Qigong are practices that are here to we work with Qi in order to improve our conditions. And like I said before, my early experience, I found that my practice of Tai Chi supported my practice of meditation. A, a very big part of the Taoist arts, which does differ from Buddhism, is a very significant, very, very significant emph- emphasis on hygiene practices with, as Taoism views the, the body as the base 
for um, spiritual cultivation. So, so hygiene is referring to the body, but in a much broader sense than um, than a Western mind might be inclined to think. Yeah, um, qi hygiene. Now, hygiene is a term Liu Ming used. Um, we could also just use the word nourishing life practices, cultivating qi in order to um, enhance or support our our basic health and well-being. Um, you know, if it, it's it's not so easy to practice. Um, whether it's meditation or higher levels of, say, ritual, if you're dealing with an illness or uh, an, an injury, um, or if you have chi flows that are distracted or not smooth. So there's a lot of emphasis on, on uh, cultivating, uh, whether that is through um, movement, like Tai Chi or Qigong, or also we could say Chinese medicine is a kind of Yangsheng practice, nourishing life, uh, even feng shui. Um, we might say music or uh, nutrition, just uh, lifestyle, like everything that grandma told us, you know, take care of yourself, sleep well, eat well, don't overdo it. Um, there's, uh, you know, the what is considered the first hygiene text in the Taoist tradition is called um, uh, it's a chapter from the Guanzi which was written about the same time as Lao Tzu it's called the Neya which translates as internal practice and it talks about regulating your movement you know don't exercise too much but you need to exercise don't eat too much but you know eat regularly regulate your sleep calm your mind etc so we can say there's this whole br very broad suite of hygiene or nourishing life practices. And then if we look at meditation. <clears throat> meditation has some benefits to our health and well-being. But... Um, just as in Buddhism, you know, Buddhist meditation is not just to improve our um, conditions. It's to, uh, in a sense, you know, see what is the context. And so Taoist meditation, same thing. It's not only a hygiene practice to improve our conditions. It's an opportunity to, and, and it it depends on what, approach you're taking within Taoism to medi meditation. So this is the distinction between the alchemical stream of Taoism and the contemplative or the wu-wei stream of Taoism. And the basic view in alchemy is that our natural condition as we are, like our starting point, is not quite complete we need to go through a transformation in order to become fully human, you might say, or to, they might use terms like to become an immortal, to get some kind of exalted experience. And so there's, um, you know, I kind of put it in the, the Western term, like how, do you, how does a sinner become a saint, kind of, or you know, what, how do 
we transform ourselves from this basic discomfort or sense of not being complete or being um, having our our perception of our nature obscured. How do you um, break through that obscurity and in, uh, into clarity? And that's the basic alchemical idea. Then there's this contemplative stream, which has a different view and has different methods. And, you know, I, I'm using these terms, that, the same terms that Liu Ming used, alchemical versus contemplative. And by contemplative, we're referring to the approach suggested by Lao Tzu, which is not starting from the position that there's, okay, there's something wrong with me. I know that. And now I need to go through some kind of, you know, very maybe uh, a complex and elaborate series of practices in order to transform myself. This contemplative stream does not start from that place, but starts from what... Um, it's the same starting point as uh, Zen Master Sung San's teaching that without cultivation, we're already complete. Okay, well, if that's the case, then what is my next move? And some people are quite critical of this approach because they think that it's going to lead to complacency. Like, okay, if I'm already complete, you can't have that as a teaching because then you're just going to go sit on the couch and eat ice cream, right? Um, my experience is not that. My experience, so this is what I, what I got from Ming, is I um, went from this, in a sense you could say that alchemical perspective, or when I was practicing Zen, this desire to break through or to transform. And Well, let, let me just try this, practicing w without trying to change things. And if you go through a deep reading, a continuous uh, kind of regular reading of Lao Tzu, you see it's all about um, relaxing desires, relaxing projections, not grasping. So that is this, this contemplative approach to meditation. And we do find that something arises out of that practice. Um, so there's the hygiene, again, the meditation, the different streams of meditation, and then the ritual. And I'll use ritual fairly loosely because I, you know, um, the Taoist tradition is uh, very deep, very complex, very elaborate, uh, very esoteric. Um, I've dabbled. Um, I went through a, an, an ordination program. My ordination teacher was himself ordained at the White Cloud Temple in Beijing, the center of Taoism uh, in China. Um, but the training, you know, we, we really studied a lot of scripture. We did a scripture recitation. Um, but we were not really practicing in an orthodox way in the way that, say, Taoism is practiced within China today. So I can't speak from that perspective, but I'll use the term ritual more loosely. I'll use it from um, kind of a, like a, a post-Protestant perspective. Um, you know, simply setting up a little altar on your own. It doesn't have to be some orthodox sanctioned thing, but it's just a little special place where you put your reverence. 
and maybe once a day you light a candle and light incense and raise it up, put it down. I call that ritual. Um, or if we are talking about going through some kind of practice where you're reciting scriptures or chanting or doing a bowing, any kind of bowing practice, I would put that in the realm of a, a ritual. And so kind of bringing back Suzuki Roshi's perspective, um, you know, we can, we don't need to view ritual as a means to like get something that we don't have, but ritual is a really beautiful way to express that which is already present. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, a little more about that. I've been told that in the Taoist tradition, even with a complex ritual, a student wouldn't have the ritual explained to them. Though I think Westerners tend to be very uh, instrumental, and so if I'm going to do a ritual, if it's a, even if it's a uh, magic ritual, there I'm, there's a purpose and a uh, arc and an outcome. And I've been told that the, in the Taoist tradition, it's a little bit more along the lines of what you described as the contemplative stream that you engage, and the engagement is sufficient unto itself, but then with repetition of the ritual over time, one deepens in a body knowing as opposed to a cognitive knowing as to the function or the meaning of the ritual. Does that does that track with your experience and your uh, of what you've been introduced to? Yes. You know, Taoism is very much an embodied practice, and it's it is, um, it is uh, particularly the the contemplative stream is not about understanding so much. Um, this is uh, another post I recently did on my blog was um, I don't know if you read the um, Buddha's Grass Shoes <laughs> it's a story from uh, Zen Master Sungsan. I'm, I'm deviating from the ritual question here but um, it's a story about a monk uh, in Korea about 300 years ago and he was not the shiniest head in the monastery um, <clears throat> Uh, had a very, very difficult time studying sutras. Couldn't understand sutras, so he tried practicing Zen. But even Zen was just too difficult for him, and so he just did working practice, just worked around the monastery. And at some point, he he just got really tired of, you know, he had the same question. I had this, this discomfort with his question, and so he approached the resident Zen master and said, you know, I'm really tired of this confusion I have. What do I do? And uh, the Zen master said, well, you need to ask a good question. And so uh, this guy's name was Sokdu, which means rockhead. <laughs> and he said, okay, what is Buddha? What is Buddha? And so the Zen master replied, and I'll, I'll butcher the Korean language, but it was Jokshin um, Shibul, uh, which means Buddha is mind or heart, heart mind. Um, but Sokdu heard Jipshim Shibul, which means Buddha's grass shoes. 
And he said, oh, Buddha's grass shoes, what does that mean? He didn't bother asking the Zen master for any explanation. You know, what, what, what does that mean? He just said, okay, thank you. And he just went off and continued working. And he just kept that question because he believed in the Zen master. He believed in his question. And he, what does this mean, Buddha's grass shoes? After three years of holding this question, he had a breakthrough experience and went to the master and showed him his shoes that had broken and they both were giggling and the master verified his experience. Um, so this is a demonstration of, um, in terms of uh, Zen, how an explanation, you know, the Zen master Sung San would often say, all the time would say, understanding cannot help you. So this is not a, a conceptual path. And Sok Du didn't really realize it at the time, I think, but he was practicing the correct method of gongon practice, which is just keeping a question. Who knows if he was even doing sitting meditation or other stuff. It's just holding that question moment to moment to moment, whatever comes up. It's not based on theory or understanding. Um, not all practices are like that, but that is this one particular stream of Zen is is a non-intellectual approach. Um, and the Wu Wei Dao tradition is similar to that. Um, we, It's not an anti-intellectual tradition, um, although you can read Lao Tzu's... Um, Lao Tzu is basically suggesting that we keep our thinking mind in check, don't get out of control with it, don't expect that our ultimate answers are completely going to be satisfied just by keeping the chi up here. We need to drop it down. And so this is why um, the, the actual practice of Taoist practices, whether it's Tai Chi or some ritual or, or even, even the process of sitting, is very much grounded in the body and the body experience. And the, I would say, to, to wrap up the Sokdu story, the, the distinction between Wu Wei Dao and this uh, Gongan practice is there's a kind of aggressive energy, the way that you're um, engaging this question in Gongan practice is very intense, very, very intense. Whereas, whereas in Wu Wei Dao and in the practice of Zhuang, it's relaxing that so we we let the chi calm down from from our head from our heart and just let ourselves be grounded in this experience we're not reaching for breakthrough we're not pushing for breakthrough and um, I suppose I should try to circle back to your question on ritual <laughs> go for it so you know I don't come from an orthodox ritual uh, background, so I, I, I feel like I shouldn't really um, go too deep there, but I do maintain a daily ritual practice that is, uh, like I said, it's a post-Protestant ritual where I've taken bits and pieces of the um, uh, Taoist invocations that I got through uh, my ordination and I've just reformulated them in a way that is meaningful for my own practice. And that is, uh, it's not orthodox and I think um, 
would not be supported by many other traditions um, because uh, Taoism has a very strong um, Confucian strain in it, whereas like you do things the way they are, were done before and you do not innovate so much. But that's it's not really the American way. Nor is it going to be helpful to m- many American practitioners, I'm imagining. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, you've been talking a lot about the embodiment aspect, um, but in one in another blog post, I was I was quite intrigued. I'm going to read this um, bit from one of another blog post that uh, I read of yours regarding the body or bodies. And uh, you write, the Taoist idea of body is quite different than the common Western notion of a material bag of bones inhabited by a singular soul. The character for personal body, Shen, indeed shows a pregnant woman and is a homophone for the word spirit, suggesting the notion of the body as an abode for spirit. Taoists, however, see bodies as circuits of energy proceeding through time. In addition to our personal body, Taoists also recognize other bodies within which we live and cultivate, namely the familial body, the communal body, and the universal body. Um, so, as Lao Tzu indicates in Tao uh, uh, Te Ching chapter 54, um, meditation and qi cultivation is not a personal practice. I'm very intrigued by some of the... Uh, um, implications of this, some of it resonates with our own Sturz and my um, uh, fourth way derived practice, but um, I'm wondering if you can sort of flesh this out for our listeners a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, you know, typically in the West, we're a very individualistic culture, and it's it's me versus, you know, there, there are not verses, but there's there's me and there's reality, right? And yeah, we've got family, we've got friends, but um, the the understanding, I mean, the basic, I mean, the the Taoist view comes down to everything is chi. You know, there's no there's there's not really this and that. There's just chi, and it will manifest in different forms or different bodies or different flows. Um, so if we've got this one particular flow that we can call me, we've got this other flow that you can call you, um, but we view that not as, as like a, a substance, it's a process. And what what is the actual process if we look at what is me, it includes my parents. It, uh, it does not exist without my parents. And so... Um, if if we there, there's a term called the dragon body that um, Liu Ming would sometimes use. It's like your personal dragon body. It's not just this thing that only exists in the moment. It's like, what has your body ever done? Where has it ever gone? If you could see all of that at one time, what shape would that be? Um, so you know, this idea of proceeding through time is the body, um, the personal body, but we have the personal body it hooks up with the family body, 
and the family body shares this the the blood and the essence but obviously that's very connected because even if you go to uh, uh, to mother and father you've got different different bloodlines there that are intertwining into what is our experience but if you look at what is my body in a larger context it includes all of my ancestors on both, both sides and it includes all of my descendants so when you know people are somewhat familiar that uh, the Chinese tend to pay a lot of reverence uh, or Asian cultures pay a lot of reverence to their ancestors and for us in the West yeah we love our grandparents and our great-grandparents but for the most part who were my great-great-grandparents? I don't even care. I don't even care where they came from. Kind of is, you know, that's probably a little overstating it. But um, in the the Chinese culture, and I think this is also true with Native American cultures, there's a very deep appreciation that um, my ancestors are part of me. Um, they They are not actually... A separate entity, and it's not like they are peop- they they were people that are gone now, but the essence of what they actually were that the, their their personal bodies, their experiences, the good things they did, the bad things they did, the the unfinished business, they left that all with me, and um, my ancestors are living in my blood, living in my. Um, uh, marrow living in my embodiment, so that uh, that next body is is viewing, in a sense, a self beyond just the personal self, but uh, recognizing the the ancestors as as part of me. And then the next body there is, I think I called it the communal body, which is. Um, it can be um, whether it's a, a group of friends or a club or a gang or a practicing lineage that um, you connect with. And if you know when you practice with a teacher, you f- you receive energy. And my experience of this is like there's. Um, like the familial body is associated with the Jing, this embodiment es- essence. But you, we have a choice for who we are training with. And we get, for whatever karmic reasons, we get drawn to training with certain people. And there's a qi resonance that we share with the, the teachers. And if the teachers maybe um, you know, sharing their space, their, their energy, that is like a wind that comes and blows the waters of your personal body. And so your experience of embodiment then is not only is it including your, your family, but this this greater lineage vibe is adjusting the chi. And it's probably going and uh, making some adjustments to your family members and maybe even making some adjustments to your ancestors. Um, and it can be interesting if you're training with different practicing groups. And I don't know how accepted that tends to be in Chinese culture. Um, I think there there tends to be like, okay, I'm I'm really part of this group. And this is this is my identity. And in in the West, we will um, 
sometimes we'll, we'll take a little bit from here, a little bit from there, um, but it can be a powerful experience to just give yourself to a teacher to really completely receive the energy of their space and to feel how that transforms your own experience. Yeah, I wanted to speak to that. We uh, On the show, we've brought this point up a few times that when someone is in a tradition and uh, there's a flavor, an energetic flavor that they have, and there are traditions that we know that uh, uh, that are related to our our own teacher's lineage and the um, and kind of a core of familiarity where my teacher had uh, uh, you know other teachers that he kind of worked with or were friends with and what I notice is that there's a sense with members of those communities that where I feel like the spiritual cousins there's a much greater sense of relationship or like that we're related in some way than I might feel with a a tradition that I absolutely respect and uh, might even borrow practices from, but is not a tradition that uh, I was uh, steeped in. And it seems like th- this is what you're describing. It's a, it's a it's a subtle feeling, and yet it's a very very real feeling that uh, of the same way you feel like if you're at a family gathering versus uh, some other uh, social gathering that doesn't involve family members. Agreed. It's a chi resonance. I would describe it as. Um, but you know what what we share with our family members might not be the same views or that that same kind of energetic vibe, but it might be say predispositions to certain disease or other things that come with the DNA. But uh, recognizing that those those different bodies exist within our experience. So that was the. Um the question of the uh, bodies, like the social bodies, um, in the Taoist tradition, there's also notions of energetic bodies. Like we have a physical body, but there's other scales of bodies, and that that notion comes up in um, some of the uh, Indian-based traditions as well, and and you see that in Western Hermeticism. I'm curious: is that is that a uh, accurate reading of what exists in some of Taoist traditions? Yes, but I haven't really cultivated those so much. This, um, this, uh, so wrapping up the, um, uh, I, I kind of get back to that, but so the, the kind of lineage body or the practicing body, then there's the, um, and the next one that Lao Tzu refers to is the, the universal body, which is the all-pervasive body. Um, and I think if we get really, really, really into a particular lineage, I mean, the idea of lineage is that it can help us transform our personal and family body in towards that universal body. Um, I have you know, really shared that same kind of vibe that you're talking about with my Tai Chi teachers, um, but they were always really, um, you know, not too into like really forming a club, but always mm-hmm. staying open to what is next because they're what they're wanting to cultivate is this this larger thing. But then uh, back to this idea of like, so you're talking about kind of like different 
levels of, say, a personal body. Yeah, I I'm, I think what I was uh, just looking at is like that. You know, when you try to configure uh, this thing self or this, you know, uh, you know, back to the question of what am I or who am I? You know, there you we've described these bodies that kind of extend out into our world. You know, social bodies. There's in you know there's the physical body. Uh, there's um, you know, some traditions talk of dream bodies, some talk about, you know, uh, etheric bodies, and, and then there's more abstract bodies that, uh, you know, get to core intention. And all of these things seem to be kind of posited as answers to this uh, uh, mystery of what am I, or what am you know, where where am I in all of that? And I guess I see from what you're describing of like sitting and forgetting that um, whether any of those uh, kind of metaphysical categories are true or not is sort of beside the point because the practice still comes back to the same thing which is letting go of the uh, sort of the, the realm of the answer and simply returning to the direct experience of being in this moment as it presents itself yeah I think the, the fundamental value of Lao Tzu is this idea of, um, it's like Zheng Zedan, um, to spontaneously rectify and to come back to things as they are um, happening you know, through uh, Wu Wei practice. So it's not, I mean, maybe there are, you know, we could probably describe the different levels of energetic bodies in very complex and elaborate ways. Um, but like that lesson of Sokdu for that particular tradition, it 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 doesn't deny those, mm. but it it doesn't it suggests that we don't. I mean, all that understanding. Chances are there's a good chance it'll just wrap up your 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 thinking mind. So the idea in Wu Wei is to not really um, not spend too much chi conceptualizing mm-hmm. the way things are. Yeah, I, I think the sense I'm I'm getting is that if you want to be a doctor and heal bodies you have to study a lot of physiology and you have to learn uh you know the names of muscles and connective tissue and be aware of the functions of the organs so presumably in Taoist tradition there are specialists who are experts in cultivation of chi uh, movement of chi and very esoteric aspects of the energetics of chi and they may be healers as like, like you see in uh, qigong uh, but what, what I'm hearing in the uh, uh, Wu Wei Dao is that there's, you know, that's all fine, but that's not what Wu Wei Dao is. Wu Wei Dao is uh, more fundamental in terms of returning to, you know, I kind of think of what Sun Tzu would say, of returning to primary point, kind of returning to the 
immediacy of our experience and that you don't have to cling to those categories. In fact, clinging to those categories as, you know, as an answer to this existential question is, is uh, a mistake. It's not that those categories are bad or good. It's, you know, they're, they're just kind of more, you know, I could learn the violin too. You know, that's, that's another thing I could do with the body. But the practice itself addresses something more fundamental, which I get from you is the is this question of the nature of my being and my relationship to myself as a being as I present myself in this moment. Yeah, I think Wu Wei Dao is, uh, in a sense, it's all pervasive. Really, it's a name that we give to the, the way things are. Um, and Lao Tzu does acknowledge the significance of learning um, and the Taoist arts require great commitment great learning um, I mean even learning a Tai Chi form well I mean can you really do that in 10 years Prob- after 10 years maybe you have some skill but it's more 15 20 years it starts building on itself so there's this um, we can say like a, a generative flow like if you want to um, produce something. If you want to produce some kind of gong fu skill, whether that's a martial arts skill or maybe some gong fu skill in medicine or music um, or the ability to speak eloquently, um, these all require um, effort and learning and kind of building on top of you know you're you're generating something and Laozi says okay so in learning every day you add something else every day you add something else and learning is this great wonderful process right but then he says in Tao every day you take something away so the suggestion is that you know while learning has its place and we would be uh, ridiculous to just say like, okay, well, take that story of Sok Du and say, okay, well, I should never understand anything like that. I mean, we'll see how far that'll get us. There's an uh, important role for learning and understanding, but then Wu Wei is just, it doesn't mean never ever learning. It's that, what is that opposite stream that just I mean, it, it could be if you're you're building, 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 and just a moment of release. That's a moment of Wu Wei. Thank you. Well, um, I have many more questions uh, that have occurred to me to ask, but we have relaxed to the end of our time, unfortunately, for this conversation. So... Um, um, uh, we always conclude by inviting our guests to let people know how to get in touch with them in terms of you know whatever teaching practices may be available, etc. We'll certainly post you know a link to your website um, when we post this podcast. But um, uh, add anything else, please. Well, right now I'm. Um I'm not really putting myself out there so much, um, except that I am a fairly prolific writer. Um, and so um, 
I'm writing this blog fairly regularly, so people can find the blog at oldoakdow.org uh, slash blog. And that provides, uh, I think, some good introductions to what is our practice all about. Um, but I've also, uh, just in the last month or two, uh, started opening up a cultivation group where we are studying the Tao Te Ching and uh, looking into this this uh, practice of Zouang, and that's in Santa Rosa uh, once a month. And I'm trying to, as much as I can, follow the format of Liu Ming, which uh, required a one-year commitment to daily practice. But um, I don't know, I haven't really decided how firmly I can stick with that because there's not a whole lot of interest, but I've got two people signed up right now, and I also have uh, six people studying in a distance program, um, and some of them are uh, really engaged, and I feel getting uh, something out of it, and it's really a pleasure. So, um, I mean, if any of this resonates with people, I would welcome them to contact me. Well, Wu Bing Chuan, Jacob Newell, thank you for joining us on The Mystical Positivist. It's been fabulous, and I look forward to to your return. Thank you. At some point. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, co-host Rob Schmidt and I have been speaking in the studio with Wu Ming Chuen, a.k.a. Jacob Newell, an ordained Taoist priest with a quarter-century experience with Buddhist and Taoist meditation and qi cultivation. He resides with his family in Santa Rosa, California, and is the author of These Taoist Bones, a book of contemplative poetry. He writes the blog, Taoist Blog of Nameless Dream, and runs the Old Oak School of Tao. Next week on the show, we feature a conversation with Reverend Terry Danielle, uh, M-A-C-T, and I think now Doctor of Divinity, a clinical chaplain, ordained interface minister, and end-of-life educator certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling. The focus of her work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Terry conducts workshops throughout the U.S. to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative ceremonial and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, and clergy for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving and its heartfelt depiction of consciousness beyond the physical body. She is the author of three books, A Swan in Heaven, Conversations Between Two Worlds, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street, Loss and Bereavement as a Journey of Awakening. Tune in for that show on Saturday, March 30th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, Follow Your Dread to the Mystical Heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff. We'll be meeting on the first Wednesday of April at 7.30 p.m., that's April 3rd, at Mindy Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. 
Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group that, that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Follow Your Dread is an undertaking best accompanied in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us once a month at Many Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about this realistic path to the mystical heart. At the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol, no event this Thursday, March 28th, spring break. But then the following uh, Thursday, April 4th, we have The Way Through, entering a new paradigm of love on earth with Sammy Vanek. The collective on earth is entering a new paradigm, which is unlike any we have known in modern history, he writes. More and more of us are waking up to a greater truth of who we are. Four years ago, Sammy Vanek woke up to the truth that everything comes from within, and so he made his one and only commitment to follow the truth to wherever it would lead him. The evening will be fun, easeful, and a powerful dive into our true selves. Sammy Vanek is an explorer, an artist, and a healer. He lives his life based on intuition which has been a wild ride outside of convention. This choice has taken him all over the world in spontaneous and miraculous ways and within himself deeper than he knew was possible when he started. After four years of dedication to this, he has now begun to share the discoveries that have been made known to him. Above all, he's discovered his passion and purpose to help guide to the light of the soul. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Heavenly Bamboo and Silk Strings, 11 melodies played on Chinese string and wind instruments. This piece is called... Spring Thoughts in the Palace. Enjoy.